Hi, and welcome to the Dewing Grain podcast. Dewing Grain are independent and local grain traders. From seed supply to harvest movement and storage contracts, they can offer you the best strategies to achieve the highest prices for your harvest. Each week on our podcast, we begin with the Dewing Grain Market Report, giving you up-to-date information and analysis, followed by Farm Chat, where we catch up on agricultural issues with a guest or two while sampling a beer. Andrew's favourite bit. So let's start with Andrew Dewing and this week's Market Report. Welcome to the Market Report. What follows are my thoughts or gut instincts on what the market is going to do. It is not an instruction to trade. Any decision to trade is yours. Market report for week commencing 30th of November 2020. Recently at Doing Grain, we have been very relaxed about the COVID-19 pandemic because it hasn't been a major issue in our part of the world. That is until our man Ian Webster came back with a positive result. Now, he found out that his wife had been near someone who had COVID and consequently on Thursday at 10 o'clock, by Friday morning, he'd had a test. He wasn't allowed in the office on Thursday. And then on Saturday morning at 9am, we found out that he was positive. That has rather changed things for us. You know, we were, as I say, relaxed. And all of a sudden, we've gone straight back to everybody's at home bar one. By 12 o'clock Saturday, we'd had the office defogged. We'd done all sorts of clean down issues and everybody's gone off, been watching carefully, see if they've got any symptoms. One or two of us have had tests, which wasn't very nice, but yet we've all come back negative. So it looks like we've contained the problem. And all of our phones who've got the COVID app have gone ping. I mean, we're in isolation until Monday night. So Tuesday, we were allowed back out again. And I know lots of the trade have been spending their entire time at home, and they're used to it. We kind of had a period of doing that more religiously, It's just shaken us back into that horrible little world. So back at home, annoying the family and trying to use one phone line when, you know, then you've got Teams and then you've got Zoom then you've got WhatsApp. It is never ending. You really don't get a break from it in any way, shape or form. So that aside, the grain market itself has been very firm. It strikes me that farmers are not in the mood to sell anything. I don't see anyone under any pressure to have to sell or move anything. We have been exporting in the last week. We did a feed barley cargo and we did a malting barley cargo. Both of those are gone. Possibly we could do another malting barley cargo. We'll see how that one shapes up. That market seems fairly firm on the export side of things as we head towards the Brexit deadline. But feed barley, yeah, I don't think we'll be selling any more boats of that. This week on feed barley, we'll start with that. AHDB came out with figures saying that there was a lot more barley 800,000 tonnes, I believe, more barley being used, taken out of the wheat supply. So there should be more wheat about and a bit more barley used in compounding. So in effect, that should tighten the balance sheet for barley up a bit. The the actual market price for barley in the last few days has actually eased back a bit, ironically. I think most people who had cargoes to fill have managed to get them filled and the pressure is off having to chase for it. So kind of 142x for spot barley, something like that. If you really do have something to sell at the moment, you are in the driving seat, so wave it around and someone will pay you what you want probably. And that applies to every commodity. So feed barley 142x, don't see that one going down. I think as we go into the new year, it's going to have a good increment. And and hopefully, depending on if those HDB figures are correct, then you know it should mean that, that we won't have much barley carried over into the next year's crop, depending on how many exports have gone out and those figures. So malting barley, well, for the molster itself, they've got issues with the pubs closed and, you know, tier two isn't going to help, tier three isn't going to help, and tier one, well, that's only Cornwall anyway. So it isn't great for beer consumption, it isn't great for malting barley usage, and let's just hope we get rid of all of the damn stocks in feed barley boats or whatever. So they're gone, and then we start next year with a very, very tight balance sheet, and we'll be relying on a good harvest to supply the molster. Moving on to feed wheat, in my opinion, it stays firm. I can't see any grain coming from farm. It's just, it's very hard. Everybody knows everyone else is trying to buy it. It really, it surprised everybody, I believe, by going up as much as it has. And I think to be trading in the 190s is certainly unexpected. We didn't predict this. So, you know, if you like, our podcasts have been inaccurate in our assessment on what would happen next. We thought we'd done well by holding out for 180-odd for some of our, if you like, pool tonnage. But no, this is pretty steamy stuff, and I, I can't see it relenting, to be honest. 
If you look at the market, the consumers aren't actually there bidding at this point. But when they stick their head up to buy it, they have to pay up for it. And the industry, the, the, the traders are saying they want the equivalent of £8 over. If you look at May 21 futures, they are 194 as we record this. And if you take £1 a month off coming back to, say, February, so 93 for April, 92 for March, 91 would be the equivalent value of February futures if you were to take a pound a month off. That gives you 199 is the offered price. People want £8 over the futures. Well, taking that to be true, then obviously that's 202 for May delivered. So we are into the 200s delivered to East Anglia. We're already trading over £200 a tonne delivered to consumers in other parts of the country. And we're at the magic place. Now, if it hits 200x farm, the question you will have to ask yourself is, will you sell it? Now, how many times have we cracked that joke? How many times has it got there? And how many of you actually do sell it at that point? And I challenge you to have a good look in the mirror and repeat the words 200 pounds a ton if it gets to that price x farm for may or june which at the moment it looks like it might just practice saying to no that's not enough okay just maybe video yourself saying oh that's not enough because it's kind of a sobering moment in my view if you look at the value of consumer delivered wheat and you look at the futures price technically There is nobody in the UK who is likely to tender May futures. It would make no sense. Mathematically, it would be better to pick up the stuff in the store and deliver it to a consumer because you can get the hoardage done for less than eight quid. So if that's the case, the futures are the wrong price. Now, either the market's going to cack out and the consumers are going to buy it a lot cheaper and the futures are going to disappear and so on. But if it stays in this mode where there's no farmer selling and in order to get supply, the consumer has to pay... £200 a tonne or 202 or 205 or 210 whatever he has to pay, the futures price will not stay at an £8 discount because nobody will tender. And there's a big, you know, the people who traded May so far, there's 66,000 tonnes in the open position. If no one's going to tender, the people who are 66,000 tonnes short of that have got to buy it in. It'll become a self-fulfilling prophecy as people who are trying to buy it in are bidding against themselves. So I think... If you want a kind of an interesting thing to watch in the background, that is a subject, if you're an anorak grain trader, that you really need to say at some point, the relationship between delivered markets and futures will change from £8 over to probably £5 over. But more importantly, it's going to prove very difficult to get out of that May futures position with the players we have in the market. And if one of those players is a really big buyer who has a lot of commitment to consumers... He's unlikely to let you out. He's going to sit there going, no, give me the wheat, give me the wheat, I'll take delivery. So it's very early to be discussing this, but I would not want to be running a short May futures position. Oilseed rape, 360 for Feb still. Ian, he's not on death's door. He looks just the same as he normally does for what it's worth. So we're looking at him on Zoom and his, you know, nice and tidy office. And there he is, just a little bit more flushed than usual and probably having to eat a bit less because there's less biscuits being put out for him as a trap to make him fat. So his assessment, a thing of note to mention, obviously it's been a very volatile market, but minor oils, which is effectively the, you know, your palm oils, your rapeseed oil, the stuff that's grown. The world stock in 2012 got down to 7%, which is a record low. The projection for this year is that it will get down to 4% stock to use ratio. So that is bullish and I think underlyingly we don't see any weakness in the old seed market yes there's people trading it there's big positions being taken and people take profits and it moves around a bit and currencies affect it but underlyingly that is a bullish story for all oil seeds it doesn't bode well for maintaining pristine Amazon rainforest if people are allowed to knock it down and put palm oil in instead but palm oil itself has got India has just taken 10% off its tariffs on imports to supply more oil to itself, which means that that in itself is going to fuel the palm oil market, which it will knock on effect to all the other ones. So we see oil seeds remaining very, very firm or steady. So it's one of those bullish market reports as we head into December. Yeah, it's a very, very positive time for prices and very difficult for the grain trade to get their hands on physical wheat off you farmer boys. I think this week our market chat is going to be the last one with Jeremy Savage. This is where we had a little spot of reminiscing 
he and I, about the good old days of, uh, of grain markets when, back in the day when you used to eyeball people face to face, you couldn't be a weasley little git who could say horrid things from a long distance, because if you did, someone would punch you in the face. So in those days, it was a proper, proper man's job, and uh, Jeremy and I have a nice time discussing it. Enjoy. Thank you for listening. Please remember that any decision to trade on this opinion is yours. The Dewing Grain app will keep you updated with real-time industry news, data analysis and insights into the market, giving you all the information you need to make informed trading decisions. A commodity selling feature enables you to source prices and receive direct offer notifications informing you on what Dewing Grain are looking to buy and at what price. Search Dewing Grain on the App Store or Google Play to download and with all of these features in your pocket, you'll have more time to sit back and listen to our podcast. To set up a trading account with us, call 01263 731 or email info at And now it's time for Farm Chat. Right, Jeremy, we're going to conclude our marathon conversation with a separate conversation about the market, yeah. the corn halls. Yeah. Are you ready? Yes, yeah, fine. So the corn exchange is a thing of legend in this modern era. Yeah. What's your feeling on it, on the passing of the corn exchange? Well, one thing that we all miss is personal contact. When we met each other on a corn exchange once a week, particularly Beres and Edmonds, which was the one big corn exchange we all went to, unless we went to London on a Monday, Mm -hmm. we had a lot of personal contacts and personal relationships, and we learned who we could trust, who we had a little bit of worries about. It was a very personal relationship when we were trading on the corn exchange, and, of course... A lot of trust was involved because we were showing ourselves the buyer. We were showing him a sample, four mm. ounces of grain, which represented 50, 100 tonnes, and there was a lot of trust involved. Absolutely. I mean, when did you first attend? Was it been Berry Market, the first yeah, one you went to? Berry Market was probably the first one I attended, probably in the early 70s or late 60s or something, because there were different times I went to Berry Market. But did you get a corn exchange as well? Yeah, I remember. Discorn Exchange, we were talking before the mics were turned on about this. I can remember when I first went into Discorn Exchange as a grown-up, as a trader working for, I guess I was with probably Dalgetty's at that time. Yeah. Because there was a period when Discorn Exchange closed for a year or two, wasn't there? Yeah, I used to go regularly to Discorn Exchange on a Friday. I can't remember exactly, but the years get obscured. Yeah, there, there was a period one. where Eric Burroughs famously reopened it again yeah. and... And I remember walking in the doors there, the great big Doric columns as you walk through those great yes. big doors. And there was a flashback to my childhood, because I remember my dad going in there with his little sample of corn, yeah. walking up to this bench with this bloke standing on a pedestal way up there, and this little farmer has to hand yes. up a sample. Oh, some of the stands were a bit like thrones. Yeah. And very distinguished. And one person who was a very well-known character on this corn exchange was known as High Collar Clark, Clark of Savills of Mellis. Mm-hmm. And one of the Clark family was well known throughout the trade because there was a nun at one, Harold Clark at Thurston, and Geoffrey Clark, or Geoffrey's father, mm-hmm. at Framlingham. They were a family of traders. But High Collar Clark was a very distinguished, a very ascetic gentleman. I remember meeting him at lunch sometimes in Ipswich. He was very thin. He wore a very high, old fashioned white stiff collar right. with little butterfly wings either side with a rather austere sort of black tie or something like a bit, that. A bit like Webby in our office, actually, Jeremy. Yes. Met him. And um, he was a very senior figure in the trade then, and people used to respect his opinion. You had to maintain your standards if you talked to Mr. Clark. And well, in fact, you were honoured if he did speak to you. It was like that. In I think I first went to Bury in 1981, and it was very much like... There was a, a way you had to approach certain revered characters. Yes, you were. Reverting to Dis again, I had an experience which is outside the grain trade, but it so happened that I was present on Dis Corn Exchange on a fairly well-known occasion when John Betjeman visited the Dis Corn Exchange with Mary Wilson. All right. And I had a little chat to John Betjeman at the time not realising it would be immortalised in poetry. Mm-hmm. He did describe the scene in this corn exchange. Did he? In his poetry, there's a bit about Dis and visiting the corn exchange. Oh, wow. 
That's rather nice, isn't it? Have you yes. got that framed somewhere? Or yes, it's you ought to. You ought yeah. to get it framed. Yes, it's, it's sort of a nice thing I can remember. But yes, there were a lot of people went to this on a Friday. I had a distant relation who used to drive up from Stradishall even in his eighties. He'd be driving up to Disc Corn Exchange in his Morris uh, Mini. Yeah, and as I say, high collar Clark was one distinct, and most of the maltsters would be present there. Mm. So it was an important ending to the week. Slipping in the pub afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Yes, that's right. And it also enabled you to sort of clear your books a bit because if you were mm. a bit long or something you want to get rid of, then you had a chance to sell it before the weekend. Yeah, I mean, it's very much a harvest market, yes. wasn't it? It wasn't yes. an all-year one, yes, was it? Yes, it didn't really operate in sort of December and January mm. time. There wasn't much going on. Berry was the sort of leading market in mm. East Anglia. There was also one, a corn exchange at Ipswich on a Tuesday and... Um, well, Norwich on a Saturday. Yeah, but Norwich on a Saturday. Yes, I remember going to Norwich on some Saturdays, although I tried. I didn't really agree with working on Saturdays. <laughs> Berry had become the dominant market by then, and it kind of yes, suited yes. everybody's midweek book. Lots of stuff was done at yeah. Berry prior to arriving lots of the yes. time. Different people met in certain pubs. Yeah, all the maltsters, it would be unusual. <clears throat> a maltster would only miss Berry if he decided he was definitely not buying and he didn't want to see anything. Most maltsters would meet their suppliers at Berry Corn Exchange. There would sometimes be a queue in front of some maltster who was thought to be paying a rather good price that week. And you'd see people like uh, Derek Crisp of ABM mm. or uh, Norman Claxton of Smith's Maltings and uh, Ken Osman. There's favourite stories about your time in the grain trade, aren't there? So, what's, you know, I've, I've got my own... Ken Osman and Norman Claxton stories. And, and yeah. so, what, you know, what, who was your, well, you can't say favourite monster? I've worked at Coleman and Ware at East Harling mm-hmm. with Norman Claxton. So I've known Norman Claxton. I knew him for many years. Yeah. And he was the, a sort of a gentleman trader when he was a trader. Mm-hmm. And uh, I do have this, uh, once Mr. Prentice, who was the sales manager of Paul's Malt, who um, Coleman and Ware was a subsidiary of, rang and I shouted up to Norman, uh, Prentice on the phone here, and he said, Mr. Prentice to you. (laughs) (laughs) Norman Claxton, well, we had this conversation a few minutes ago for the sake of the podcast. Norman Claxton, when I first went up to him, the first time I was allowed to go to Berry Market on my own, had his own spin. I'd been shown around the market by David Brown from Dalgettys. And I turned up with David. I was overawed by the unbelievable sort of Again, the Doric pillars and the yeah. grandioseness of it and all of these very, very sort of strict types in there. And I thought, I won't be getting here for a few years because Brownie's going every week and or John yeah. Ward would go. Yeah. And uh, one week, suddenly, Brownie said, oh, you can go to Perry this week. I was like, what, what me? It, yeah, you go. And uh, it, it transpired, he sent me because we used to export stuff out of Great Yarmouth. Yeah. And he had, he was fairly robust on the phone. If something went wrong with a load of barley, Brownie was not blessed with the subtleties of the world. Sometimes he just go, right, your lot's rejected. It's no good, boom. And as opposed to kind of try and be a bit more gentle about the conversation. <laughs> and Clive Dewars, remember Clive? Yes, I remember Clive very well. Well, <laughs> Clive, I came into Barry Corn Exchange on my own and I was scared crazy because I think, well, who do I talk to? And I had a list of names to who to approach. And, um, there was this chap with his foot on our stand, and he was standing there, and he was looking robust and pretty sort of like fierce. And I went up, I said, hello, I'm Andrew Dwayne from Dalgettys. And, and he said, where's Brownie? I said, um, oh, it's David sent me down today, in my best voice. And uh, he said, well, you can tell him, you know, he's a good job, isn't he? Because I'd have sorted him out he was. Yeah. And it transpires that Brownie knew that Clive Dewars was <laughs> yeah. So I was allowed to go that week, and as luck would have it, the market moved quite a lot. And I actually kind of called it and phoned the officers I think things are a bit hotter than we thought they were we need to pay up a bit and it was actually quite a good I did a good job so yeah. I was allowed to go from then onwards yeah. more yeah. regularly so that yeah yes well Barry was you know very much a meeting place for merchants throughout East Anglia people came from a long way away to attend Barry yeah, I, I mean yeah. um, Elvin Phillips would come up from Marks and Oxen mm-hmm. Farmers BB&O and uh, there was traders well, you'd have Lincolnshire Barley yeah. you'd have the far side of and Cambridge there were, and opportunities to move stuff on. Mm. I remember I used to buy a bit of stuff from Mike Hay of TWMP Franklin, or mm-hmm. Twiddle, Whittle and Piddle, as we called them. And I got on very well. I knew Mike Hay very well, but unfortunately he died young. But there were enormous um, relationships built up between merchants from all over the place. 
Um, it was important developing a personal relationship with people. Well, people had their favourites, didn't they? Oh, yes. You see, so, so uh, Dalgettis were bulkers, so yeah. we competed with the Molsters, and we weren't very popular with the local no, Molsters, because no. we pushed the price yeah. up in their eyes. It was rather frowned on to be supplying Dalgetty rather than being dealing direct with the, the Molsters. And, of course, the, if you had very good barley, you were allowed to supply Goff's maltings at Berish and Edmunds. You've got another Pe- half crown a quarter or something. A peach malt? They were Peaches, very, yes. Yeah. Is that uh, Goff's? That's, yes, that's Goff's, yes. Okay. Because yeah. they uh, were the very best of the best farmers. They only had the best. And they. I always remember my father telling me, who used to farm at Chedbury near Berries and Edmunds, that before the war, in about 1938 time, he took a sample into Berries and Edmunds to sell because he thought he got a good sample and showed it to Mr. Goff, right. I think it was. <laughs> and... Mr. Goff looked at it and turned up his nose and said, rubbish, and threw it down in front of my father. Blimey. And that was his reputation. <laughs> they were difficult people to trade with. Well, you had to have a, some form of connection because it was it was the era when their superiority was beginning to wane and little oiks like me were, yeah. were possibly kind of allowed to trade here and there. Yes, they were inclined to say, who are you? Yeah, well, no, yeah, Norman Claxton. When I when I went over to Norman Claxton, F and G Smith Spire, yeah. he said, "Who are you?" And I said, Dad, I'm I'm Andrew Doing." Who's are you related to Richard Doing? He said, and I said, "Well, yes, but it's not the one you're thinking of because there's this guy who farmed in Coltishall called Richard Doing, who everybody seemed to know. He's infamous for his various behaviour things." And uh, I, he said, "No, no, not Coltishall. I, I used to catch a train to University of Nottingham uh, and used to get on the train at Home Hale Station." I said, well, yes, that'd be my dad. This is the only time in my life that nepotism ever stepped in. And I went, yes, my dad. He said, good sort. Anyway, so I was allowed to show him a barley on the basis of him yeah. going to yeah. university. And he bought one from me, which when I took, went back to the office, they were shocked. Yeah. I'd sold some as Dalgetty to F&G Smith. Yeah. I mean, there were, the only maltster I remember well who didn't go regularly to Berry was Ian Rutter right. of Ditchingham Maltings. Yeah, no, that, I think that was just before my time. I yes. I can't. Uh, he wore his cap very low over his eyes to keep the sun out when he was looking at good barleys, and we used to inspect the barleys at a window outside one of the sheds. If you went there by your appointment, he very rarely bought anything because he didn't want it, but if he rang you up and said, I want to see some barley, you dashed in quickly with your bag. As, as many as you could. Uh, as many as you could stuff in it, and he'd buy everything you could show him. And Blimey. you made a bit of a killing because he usually pays another waiting, half a crown a quarter. I sit there waiting for him to find. Yeah. Come on. Oh, you, oh, you draws a ring, Ian Rutter, up and say, would you like to buy some, Ian, you know? And you try to butter him up. But he mm. was very nice. But if he rejected somebody, he shook his head. No. Uh, <laughs> you've got to have the right stuff. And then, of course, the, just up the road at Watney's Maltings at Tibbetsall was Paul Northam. Mm. A sort of a, another gentleman of the trade. I used to get on very well with Paul and know him well, and he would ring up sometimes and say, got any barleys you want to get rid of? And that was a hint that the trade was sort of falling a little bit. So you rushed up to uh, Tibbetsall with your bag and showed him samples. Sometimes with Maris Otter, if you say, well, this has got a little bit of wheat in it, you know. He said, all right, I'll have it. Wheat's just as good as barley. Makes malt. <laughs> I mean, with that in mind, the point is there are certain people supported you and certain people yes, didn't, they did. didn't they? And if they weren't going to support you in the end, it was a pointless exercise queuing was, to see yes. them, wasn't it? You've got to have <clears> some... You'd virtually have to be giving them something worth 25 shillings a quarter. Yeah. And you'd have to be giving it to them when it was far too good for the grade you were selling it or yeah, something. Yeah, it was that. You had to do that to get yourself in so you could then talk to them more regularly because they were looking for that bargain. When, when I became a bag merchant, I worked for John Lee Bennett's. Yeah. But they were partly owned by the Anglia Holdings Group. So we always had that. You know, all the other monsters then thought we, we were feeding back information to yeah. crisps. Yeah. And, but, you know, as a bulker, it was a disadvantage. John Lee Bennett's wasn't so bad. I kind of would have liked to have gone in there completely as an independent without any form of backing, like we are now, yeah. because I think we would have received more favourable reception. What we forget today is that When you had a bag of samples, you owned them. You had risked your life by buying this barley from some farmer who might have been tricking you, and you went out to sell something you owned. Whereas today, most of the stuff you've sort of... People ring me up and say, can you give me a price on so-and-so? And And he's then going to the farmer to buy it, you having put a price up. 
No, you need to, you can't, when you were back, you couldn't do that. No, you had to be, yeah. have courage. You had to do a deal and you had to stand by your deal. Yeah, you know, this was known. You also had to be wary of the, all, some of the old tricks like pre-rain and post-rain and you'd get a lovely sample from the pre-rain off a field and but what you got was post-rain. Well, if it was rejected it was re- and, and it was post-rain, <laughs> you'd know though, wouldn't you? When the yeah. lorry came back, you'd say, well, hang on, this farmer is obviously, yeah. he knew what he was doing. It was done by eye. Yeah, and if it didn't match the sample, you can say, "Well, that's the sample we took from yeah, you." That's right. Yeah, and of course, the one thing that you carried with you on the marker was always in your bag, was your set of cutters, mm. because everybody looked at sample and they put them in the cutters to see whether they cut nice and mealy and white, mm. or whether they were steely. Mm. And cutters were invaluable. Uh, I also had made for me, especially a, a small hand, a little hand sieve, which I've still got which would just give me an idea of what the screens were like Mm. because it was important to know what had gone through a 2.25mm screen and so you just a hand sieve just to see what the sample was like. You don't think people sort of gave it a quick touch-up before they went to market then? Yeah. You know, to give it a quick... Before you put the bags together, give it a quick shake, not too bad, but just take the dust out of it. Yes, that's right, just blow it over. Mm. I mean, a lot of people, you know, put the sample in the palm of your hand and just give it a little blow to take the dust and... Yeah, polish it up a bit. Yeah, yes. And, of course, there was a tale of... I think this was Harold Clark of Thurston was renowned... He kept on his desk some a couple of dishes which with little pieces of chalk in. Mm-hmm. And so every sample he had, he'd slip a piece of chalk in it, you see. And when he was showing it to the maltster, he said, from off the chalk, you know, boy, off the chalk. <laughs> and of course, barley from the chalk was reckoned to be better than the heavy nah. ones, you see. Nah. Um, and it was an <clears throat> important ingredient, a little bit of chalk, to show that it came from good quality malting barley land. Yeah, I, I mean, I always remember, I mean, we all think our little patch is the best place. You know, north-east Norfolk, historically, yeah. has proven to be phenomenally good at producing low nitrogen, fantastic yeah, spec, yeah. year in, year out, with air with it. Other parts of the country have had their great moments, but some hideous disasters as well. Yeah, I mean, the chalk was sort of Cambridgeshire, that area, the Gogmer Gogs, that area produced good barleys from the chalk man's but that doesn't apply every year. No, nowadays, you get because a dry old time and you're Yeah, and struggling. then you get high nitrogens off that area. Mm. So there's a lot of tales of the old boys on the market with their little tricks and, and uh, foibles. The thing about the market to me was, as in my you know early and mid-20s, it was a physical thing. You couldn't be a snaky little pale-faced person behind no, a phone no, no. who delivered some very nasty news or was particularly aggressive like is around now, there's some yeah. little, you know, dicks in the trade. In those days, if you were a bit snaky, someone's as liable to say, right, outside. Yeah. And, you know, let's prod you in the chest and go, right, Sonny, stop it. Or, yeah. you know, oh, I'm yes. not having that. And it became, it was a physical thing, which I think that made for a much healthier industry, you know, to actually stand there and be counted. And, of course, yes, I mean, honourable trading was a very important ingredient then. Massive. People stood up to a deal... You shook hand on a deal, and if it was wrong, it was wrong. And, and if you reneged, it went round like wildfire. Oh, yeah. You lost your reputation amongst your peers. Yeah, there were yeah. people who had a, a good reputation, and however things were difficult, of course they had a good reputation. The market supported them. Yeah. And there were people who were regarded as a bit, mm, not quite the gentleman, you know. Mm. Um, That's it, not quite the gentleman, you yeah. know. It's a little phrase that was used. Yeah. And if that was said, he was a marked man. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I've had those conversations. Talking about Clive Dewar, I vaguely remember him having a fight with someone at Dismarket. That was Dismarket, yes. Yeah. Sorry, that was in the back of my mind. Yeah. He did get upset with somebody, yes. Yeah, um, and they were rolling down, very well with they were rolling down Church Street or something. And right yeah. on. And he and, came afterwards, he was like... Oh. And his father was... A, <laughs> I remember his father, Oliver, who was a very distinguished-looking gentleman, who my mother rather fancied, if I remember rightly. Oh, blimey. <laughs> well, I hope your dad didn't mind that, I suppose. Didn't well, notice. it was only a distant appreciation. That's all right, then. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they, we parked on the same... There was a little car park we used at Berry, which mm-hmm. a lot of merchants used. Mr Cullum, I think his name was, who owned it. A lot of merchants parked there, so there was a little bit of a pre-market discussion going there. Yes, it was a gentlemanly affair. You had to be accepted by the market, really. Again, I go back to that point about the the hierarchy and how everybody was the very highly revered 
mobster and then the kind of old school members of the trade who there was a hierarchy. I told the story about meeting Norman Clax my very first week going there. Yeah. And I went up to, after I'd seen him, I went up to meet Ken Osborne because I had a list of names that I was told to go and visit that week and I didn't know who they were. So I went up to Ken Osman of Munton's next. There was a queue going up to him. And I told you this story off there, so bear with me, Jeremy. But I went up to him and I finally got to his stand and he looked at me and said, who are you? And I'm Andrew doing from Dalgetty's. And he opened my bag, uh, the big leather case, and he just took the samples out and went, no, and chucked it on the desk. He took all my samples out, one by one, without looking at them, and chucked them on the desk. Didn't ask me a price. And uh, he said, no, I don't think I've got anything here I'm looking for. And I said, oh, you haven't even looked at my Barleys, Mr. Osmond. I was very brave to say that. And he said, I don't look at second-hand Barleys. And I thought, oh, I'd been to see Norman Claxton first. Yeah. And he was telling me a little coded way, don't you dare do that, Sonny. Anyway, so I took my time and filled my case. The very next week I went back, I went straight into his queue. Yeah. And st- when I got to him, I said, Andrew, doing Dalgettys. I opened my case and went, here's some first-hand Barleys for you, Mr. Osman. Yeah. And he had no choice. He had to buy something. <laughs> he knew. I always got on really well with Ken Osman from that moment. He was great to me. Yeah. You had the divisions in your bag. Yeah. And you would get sort of ten samples out and say, I've selected these for you, Mr. Osman, because you know what he was looking for. And so you were showing him what you'd selected for him. Yeah. And which told him that they were for him. And the other part of your bag was for somebody else, you know. Yeah. So you made sure that you selected specific people. Yeah. Just a little aside, a well-known character in the trade, who I, the first time I met Richard Johnston was when I was working with Norman Claxton. And Richard was sent by his employer to ask if we would share some of the grain we'd bought from a well-known farmer in the area who owed both of us money. And Richard's employer had asked him to come and beg us to share some I was like, boy, do you want to join and share some barley with me? I'll, I'll do that. And I remember we <laughs> sort of said to Richard, I'm sorry, we've bought it against what he owes us, and that's it. Mm. But Norman was very polite. We actually ended up, we were quite friendly with Richard, really, but it was rather a difficult mission that poor Richard had been in. Richard was great. I like Richard Johnson. He was outspoken, he stuck his neck out, and he did exceptionally well. He really... Yeah did what yeah. I did years and years later. And he just had that. He's so much more front and so much more out there. He's an amazing yeah. he, fellow. He was very helpful. And there was the occasion when he realised I'd done some trade with somebody he'd heard a rumour about. So he came to see me. And we jointly rang up the Midland Bank manager in the Midlands, where this merchant was. And we were given a guarantee this man was good for 100000 Within two days, he was in liquidation. And I didn't get my ten or 12,000, whatever it was. Mm. It's just one of those things that I've learned never to trust the bank's ah, that's a whole the bank new, reference. That's a whole new book of worms, that one. Yeah. No, well, Richard Johnson, while we're on the subject of him, he phoned me up when I first set up on my own. And I'd, I'd known him vaguely in the trade, in and out, but he yeah. phoned me up and he said, good on you, boy, go for it. You go, you know, and he, he was really supportive at times, because you were on your own yeah. as well, it's quite lonely, isn't it? And it you, is. you don't know whether you're right or wrong. Just having a kind of senior member of the trade to say, that's brave of you, that's good of you, or something that encourages your appeals to yeah. your whatever it is that you need, you know, reminding you've done the right thing. He was, he every time I saw him, he would always pat me on the back and make a little fuss of me, which he didn't need to do. And he'd already made his money, hadn't he? And he was kind of in retirement, I guess, or heading that way. Yeah, oh, Richard was a very good friend. Yeah, but the characters that were... I can remember meeting Michael Banks at Berry Market when I was a young man. And he was a big bloke, wasn't he? Oh, yes. And he yes. used to... He, he loomed. He did a bit of looming. Now, a lot of you who listen to this podcast will know Michael. And he was charming and and he really imposed himself. He's like... Oh, you yes. know, and I thought, I thought, I'm not going to step back. I'm going to determinedly stand my ground. He's getting a bit close for comfort. He was very kind of dominant and strong, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean... Uh, I've got a, a sort of political memory of the Banks family and that I met Richard Banks at a thing. I was chauffeuring Douglas Hogg as Minister of Agriculture right. uh, around East Anglia, Eastern Counties, and I took him to a meeting which Richard Banks was at, big farmer at Bedfordshire. Mm-hmm. We were having this lunch that had been put on by this farmer who obviously was displaying his wealth. There were all silver pheasants and partridges all up the middle of the table and silver chandeliers and the most impressive, best quality wine to drink. 
But Richard Banks was there. It was very pleasant that I got to know him quite well at this occasion. The other side issue from there was that the the PPS, the parliamentary secretary, riding the back of my car, and has since realised that he knew my face was George Osborne. Really? Blimey. Well, he was just a... He was the office junior, basically. Oh, right, OK. Excellent. Yeah. So the market itself, I mean, it kind of ran its course. What killed the market? Mobile phones, email? Yes, I think the trade changed. We moved away from trading on samples. Larger mention the dark edges of this world began to sell 500 tonnes of that type, mm. matching a type sample. Yeah. And it was done through stores, so it was all blended. In, and the maltster gained uniformity, and he wasn't trying to make, you know, 100 tonnes from one man and 50 from another, and they didn't really blend them himself. It was done for him. Yeah. So what he received was a standard sample, and he had probably said, I will take Max 175 nitrogen, 90 retained on it, yeah, that sort of thing. And there was a quality standard. So the bigger merchants started going for that type of trading. So Dalgettys, banks and others mm. of that nature were trading that way. That was how I learned to trade. That was all I knew, really. I yeah. used, would trade individual lots, but having been the boy who put the bag together and I was given some instructions of sizes of lots, I would blend samples for Dalgettys to have a bulk lot of 500 yeah. and then write the code on the bag. Yeah, you know, for, for what the prices were. So the trader could then say, right, this is what it cost us. I now know what... In the early days of trading of that way, the merchant, the big merchant might have a 1,000 tonnes in store, but when he was selling, he'd have packets with sort of 100 tonnes on, 150 tonnes. Mm. All the same type came out of that store. Mm-hmm. So he would be selling in bits and pieces, but it would come from it that It looked store. more authentic. Yes, and it put, looked as if it came from put a farm. an obscure village on it, saying yeah. it came from Holcombe yeah. or it yes, came from right. Fakenham, and in fact it came from Kingsland. You had to be, if your address was Fakenham, that's a good malting barley area. Totally, Richard Wake always used to put Holcombe on his samples, yes, because <laughs> it was renowned. Which is yeah, okay, yeah, but, but you put the right village on. I mean, you didn't go and put somewhere which was renowned heavy land, which didn't produce very good <laughs> barley. No. Um, Miraculous numbers ever grown there, isn't yeah. it? It's the same as my <clears throat> piece of chalk, boy. You know, you had to be your barley had to come from the right sort of area to be recognised as potentially good quality malting barley. Mm. I can remember when the market was on fire. Every now and again, you'd walk in there, and the mood of it—it it was very much perception. That's the thing about physically being there. There was a mood. There's a sombre. There's a kind of we're not doing much today mood. Or there's a, something's going on. Just look. He's there nodding was, his head and booking him up, and you can see it's happening. Well, there was a difference in that, like, if you, I had to stand just behind Ken Osman for Muntins, and uh, if the market was a little bit on fire, instead of me going and standing meekly in the queue to be seen, you get straight turn to and him. say, Got anything your back show me? And yeah. you knew that was a clue that the market was wanting to buy. Yeah. And it was always when the maltster asked you to show him something that you had to have something in your bag to show him. Well, then it became a, oh, I'm going to have to hide some of these bags because someone's going to ask me to open this in a minute. I don't want to sell anything. Or, look, I've been told to set the price, let's add. But again, either you had a skill for that or you didn't. I definitely had a skill for that. I would have a price I was supposed to be aiming at on my coded price. I would think, right, I'm going to add £5 to this. I'm going to add £10 to it and just see what they'll take. And if it was too much, you then were able to gauge. If they just went, yeah, OK, I'll have that one, that one, and yes, that one. Yes, your code shouldn't be obvious if you were using a code because the skill was realising the market was on fire a little bit. And so instead of asking 100 shillings a quarter, you asked 105 a quarter yeah. or, yeah. you know, it was... Yeah, your code had to be obscure, but you needed also have to have the brain cell to say, right, I'm going to add something to this every yeah. single time and just see how much I can push it. The other thing when the market was on fire in the... 1980, 81 pre-mobile phones was there was only five or six booths with telephones. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there was an old boy whose name we can't remember. Yeah. In a three-piece suit and a hat, who used to answer the phone, yeah. didn't he? And, and he'd be called, you know, uh, telephone- anybody here from Dalgettys? Or, or dal- telephone call, Jeremy Savage. Yeah. Telephone box number two, please. Yeah. And you'd have to go over there, and, and of course, the difficulty was making outgoing calls, and this is where the mobile became very useful. Mm when it first came in, because when the market was sometimes active, you wanted to be in touch with the futures market to check what the futures were doing. Yeah. And if you couldn't get a phone, you were a bit stuck. Well, people would block the boxes. So other merchants 
couldn't get the message out. So when you were one so of their the... men had an advantage on the farm. They were yeah. told block the boxes. I was one of the first to have a mobile phone. I had a, what was called a sapphire, which was like a black brief case which was as heavy as hell yeah. and it got a thing like a brick in it which was the phone great battery section yeah and of course i could independently ring the futures market and say well they've gone up a five or something if that happened but the occasion that it moved upwards and you would know better than the market dalgetty's at rackie had exactly the same machine and yeah. it was, uh, you had one arm weighed down with samples great big leather case and the other with this great big case of a phone <laughs> yeah. But being in my 20s, yeah. to have a mobile phone, I was the sexiest thing. This is my favourite grain trade story, so I'm going to tell it again, probably, if you've heard it before. I don't care. I got to the bit where we were working with the market. I don't think the market did much that particular day. But I walked with my telephone, this great big suitcase, across to the side of the hall, made sure everyone saw me. I've got my phone here, you know. And I walked across where the windows were to get a better reception. And I got it out and I pressed the buttons and I shouted down the phone to get my message through. Yes, you know, the market's, yes, I'm on my mobile here, yes. And did all of that stuff that you do when you're a complete yuppie. I managed to phone the office and get the message across. And the old boy, who with the hat on, came across to me and he tapped me on the shoulder. And I swear to God he did this. He went, it'll never catch on. And I, <laughs> the irony, his job was wiped away by the mobile phone, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah. But it was a change in time, and it was just, yeah. I just, I shall never forget it, his little face, bless him. Yes, it was right, you know, you walked on the market, I've got a mobile phone, sort of one up on somebody else. I've got another lasting memory of Berry Market, Cyril Adams bought me a cup of tea once, how about that? Yeah, oh, that was an honour. <laughs> well, Cyril used to come out with those little lines that kind of, you know, is he being nice or is he being really horrible? He's just really clever at saying something. And smiling and you're thinking, oh, that hurt, but did it? I'm not really sure. Anyway, he, <laughs> I remember he bought me a cup of tea and uh, he said, yeah, I better buy you a cup of tea. I think that was shortly after. I was supposed to be at market one week and I set off. For, I lived in Neatstead. I was working for John Lee Bennett's in Downham. And I set off from 200 yards from my home. I slid into a lorry that was collecting grain for Adams and Howling. I can't remember what the name of the, oh, yeah. the hauler was yeah. there. And I didn't make it to market that day. And I went, oh, Andrew Drinks had an accident. And he all embellished it. It goes through the roof. I wasn't, I was a bit shocked. I can't yeah. pretend I wasn't. So I missed that market. The next week I went. And that's when I think Cyril bought me yeah. a cup of tea. Oh, right. well, you see, when you got to know Cyril well, he was a good friend. He's an incredibly successful guy who's done exactly yeah. the same as we did, isn't he? Yeah. He, did, yeah. he did his own merchandising operation. And... Boy, he's had some support from Broadland farmers ever since. Amazing. Yeah, Still yeah. going, you know. Oh, yes. I mean, he's got a strong farm base. Mm. And his two lads run the business, don't they? Yes, they do. Yeah. I mean, this is the difficulty. We've lost so many of these smaller merchants. The farmer has suffered in to some extent because it is wrong for agriculture as a whole to allow one merchant to become dominant, as happened in Australia and New Zealand when Dalgetty mm. virtually ran the agriculture. Yeah over there and it's now faded away but it's just wrong for agriculture to allow that to develop and if the same would happen if they allowed a co-op to become too dominant yeah the co-op sector is in trouble though isn't it yeah forgive me it hasn't served its purpose i, I think farmers have been too well off for the too long a period i think a bit of adversity is going to possibly reinvent the co-op if yeah, you the farmers haven't to some extent they haven't supported the co-ops in the right way mm in that I worked for Blycorn, which found that there were members of the, which were supposed to be 100% members of the group yeah. who were trading on the side yeah, yeah. away from me, and that caused difficulties because well, you Blycorn suddenly went realized, broke, didn't they? Blycorn yeah. went down. Yeah, and they were sometimes the most upright gentlemen of society, mm. and they were the ones you couldn't really trust sometimes. Absolutely, but you can't question a farmer's publicly integrity but yeah in the end a co-op is only ever going to be successful if they collectively do something that is to the mutual benefit yeah. or is going to stand up against someone who has almost a monopoly at the moment there is no need to do it but i think somewhere down the line there will be a a moment when i think there will perhaps will be a call or people will say well, enough we're not going to do this but we need everybody to move in the same direction at the same time you see the cooperatives think that the only way to trade is pools nah. And that isn't the only way to trade, and that's where they lose some of their membership, the loyalty of some membership, when they're going for all these pools. You need to be 
able to, if you're dealing with a bigger state, with the bigger farmers, yeah. you need to be able to trade like they're traders nowadays. Yes. You need to be able to say, right, this market's going up, we need to cash settle what you've done, we need to go long again. You need to treat them like they're grown-ups, not say, oh, we'll tell you what the price is in 18 months' time. That's just pathetic. No, I, I mean, I think the most successful co-ops have been the ones who marketed the grain yeah. rather than traded for, around a, it. A pool was there to be a convenience factor, but it wasn't the only way of trading. Well, it was an average, wasn't it, over yeah. a period of months. And you did better for the co-op if you marketed the individual farmer's grain. Yeah, I agree. It just works better. That's what we did at Aylsham. We individually did deals with farmers and we traded giving them the information and didn't create a pool. Yeah. The pool is not the answer. And certainly from your case, Andrew, if you're trading with the bigger states in North Norfolk, you need to be marketing their grain. Yeah, you need to be as better, Yeah, don't you? Uh, sharp as a knife on when the market's moving yeah. for or against. And to be able to ring them up, look, we think we're just coming up to a bit of a peak. Yeah, You ought to be selling a bit. Yeah. just to get some of this market, that works better for the bigger states than the pool. Because they want to make the decision themselves. They want to be conscious of what they're making. Yeah. They put that into their budget. They know what their budgets are, etc. Yeah. And again, if you're trading forward, when you're dealing with those bigger states, you can discuss with them what is the profit level. Where's your break-even point in mm. price per tonne for your grain? And if he says, all right, I need 130 to break in, and you say, well, the market's now at 160 you should be selling some. Yeah, That is the, the way to treat and to regard the bigger states as part of your team, really, mm. and work with them. And it works a lot better that way. And certainly when I was at Blycorn, that's how we worked, and it worked very well. We mm. achieved very high average, and we increased the membership quite a lot because people appreciated we were making an effort to sell their corn, yeah. not just the pool. So the markets, they died, they went. I mean, now we have a, a biannual get-together in the industry, which has been shut down due to the pandemic. But the bourse that is in December yeah. and in May, June time each year, hopefully we'll be back doing that by next well, May. Well, yes, I hope so. I mean, I haven't been to the bourse for some time, but that's because I'm fairly deaf and they've been holding it in a place with a very low ceiling. And it's absolutely impossible for me to hear. Yeah. It's just drowned in noise. Yeah. And, of course, I'm getting a bit ancient, so... Uh, <laughs> no, no, I'm um, not going to hear that. I do want to talk about something, though, that you yeah. are part of, that as, as we finish this, is because you are one of the trustees of the Benevolent yeah. Society. Just because also Richard Butler and yourselves are trustees of Grain Trade Benevolent. Yes, it's the Corn Exchange Benevolent Society. Right. We have a, a team of trustees... I've been one for close, I think, getting towards 25 years. Mm. I took over from Clive Dewars, actually. Did you? And you have Richard Butler, John Stokoe, James Stafford from mm. uh, Heart of England, used to be Heart of England, and somebody from the Bristol Corn Trade, mm. Corn Association, David Caffel. So we have a fairly broad representation in the trade. We have a fund of about £4 million. It varies a bit, but it's just over £4 million at the moment invested which gives us an income a hundred thousand or so a year we help people who are in difficulty now theoretically we favor the people who are members and life membership only costs you 50 pounds right so any member of the grain triggers we've got our guys at work who've all yeah. signed up to this yes they're all members individuals of and we, we had someone who unfortunately died but you've been yeah. able to help his widow and son you yeah. know ever since because of that single joining up all those years yeah. ago yes because you joined your staff up and there are several companies now who have all their staff members and it's certainly a good idea because in your case this man died quite suddenly really mm -hmm. initially he was uh, in addenbrooks and his family had difficulties affording traveling to addenbrooks every day mm -hmm. to see him so we've looked after the widow and we've helped his son mm -hmm. and they've now set up in life we have numerous applicants from out the country, not as many as we think we should have because people tend to forget we exist, hmm. but we help with paying utility bills, providing income. So people who fall on hard times yeah. in this industry, yeah. which is, you know, so the reason we're asking about this is just to nudge a few people who probably aren't aware of it. It truly is a benevolent society for yeah. the grain trade. If you're in the industry, the opportunity to join is we there. We can react very quickly. Yeah. I mean, we've been known to produce a cheque within 24 hours. Mm. I think you bought a laptop for the for the land, didn't you? You couldn't afford to yeah. buy a computer. Yeah. 
And you would say, well, yeah, we can do that for you. And that's an enormous help if someone is on hard times. So if anyone out there is not aware of this, you know, contacting yeah. you, Jeremy, is probably the best route. Yes, I mean, if they contact me, I will put it to the secretary and, yes, the secretary will ring you and, and ask some detailed questions. Mm. And we can give a very quick response. And, of course, in this time, with the problems caused by the lockdowns and things, which mm. mean that there is a, a lack of trade very often and people mm. are finding it very difficult. And in one case, I can think of somebody who started a business up just before last Christmas is really on hiding nothing because they've got no government support because yeah. they hadn't got a record of the business yeah. and they're thrown back onto universal benefit. But there are ways of getting help. And, of course, the other thing is you should be talking to your local district council because they sometimes can help in some circumstances. Yeah. But just By having... all means, if anybody in the grain trade asks me, and I'll see what I can do, I mean, there's all sorts of ways I've helped people. There was somebody in Norfolk, who, a widow who had a fence blown down, and we mm. managed to pay it was £700 to replace the fence. Not the sort of money that a that, widow... But can... that makes an enormous difference if you are on hard times, doesn't it? Just to yeah. be able to have that. It's a job that would just sit there undone and, and or be yeah. bodged or something. And there they have, good fence back in place, one less worry. Yeah, and of course, we give people a Christmas box, a hamper and a, a payment at Christmas time or mm. when the weather's particularly cold, maybe, a cold weather payment. We try hard to look after, and most of the people who are beneficiaries are in regular contact with our secretary, so we help them whenever there's things are difficult. And... It's surprising how extraordinary people, I can think of people who've been managing directors of a company who have suddenly fallen on hard times and have got nothing left. Mm. Or somebody whose husband collapsed and died age 60, left them in complete distress because they hadn't got a pension policy mm. and the widow is left with no support. So in those sort of cases and many others, we'd love to help. OK, do you know what, Jeremy? I think we've covered the ground on the market and we've covered the ground on the Benevolent Society. So, thank you very much. So, yet again, Jeremy, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. I'll enjoy it very much. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to get new episodes as they are released and follow us on Twitter. We are at Dewing Grain. Call Dewing Grain on 01263 731550 or email info at dewinggrain.co.uk. The Dewing Grain podcast is produced by East Coast Design Studio in Norwich.